Father, speak a word to us about your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Mary and Joseph head to the temple in Jerusalem for the purification ritual, which was in ancient Israel, um, after a woman had had a baby, it was considered a bodily discharge, and so there was a purification ritual that she would go through to be considered ritually uh, clean again. And then there was the, as the, as you just heard in the gospel reading, um, the necessity of presenting the firstborn male as holy to the Lord, right? Holy meaning set apart for the Lord's purposes. And so it was with Jesus who entered into all of the fullness of our humanity. So he's taken to the temple and there is a devout man named Simeon upon whom the Holy Spirit rests and upon and to whom the Holy Spirit revealed that even in his old age, he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Imagine trying to keep that a secret. But you see, the center of the passage in Luke chapter 2 today is what Simeon prophesies over Jesus because it has everything to do with what his destiny is and what he came for. And so in verse 34, we read this, Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Mary, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And then, of course, pointing to Mary's future sorrows over the death of her son, he says, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. He says, appointed. He said this is what he was appointed for. This is his destiny. This is that for which he came, which is God's purpose for him. The falling and rising of many in Israel to reveal the thoughts of what is going on in the hearts of man. You see, today's sermon's title is The Christ, The Crisis. Because you see, Jesus... In every person that he encounter provokes a crisis. What is a crisis? It's a, it's a moment of intensity where a decision must be made in the heat of the moment. A, a sometimes a very drastic decision. Now sometimes you have large scale crisis like the, uh, uh, what's happening in Wuhan, China with the coronavirus and sometimes the crisis is you take your small children to the neighborhood park four blocks away in the stroller and one of them says, I have to go potty. <laughs> and you have to go all the way home. But this, crisis that Jesus provokes is one that has eternal consequences for those who encounter him, which is all of us. And Simeon said, he's going to divide Israel. He's going to divide his people between those who believe and receive him as Lord and those who reject him. And so it goes for all of the world as we know. And as the story moves on and Jesus walks the land of Palestine, Every person he encounters is faced with a decision. We see this especially in the Gospel of John. Will that person recognize who Jesus is and respond accordingly and lay down everything at his feet and call him Lord and God? Or will they say, eh, I don't think so. And so it goes all the way into our own day. You see, it, it very much Jesus' destiny has very much to do with human salvation and condemnation. He, he divides the sheep from the goats. 
And it's, it's something that, that doesn't get talked about from the pulpit very often today. But what Jesus does, or how we respond to who Jesus is and what he does, our, our eternal destiny depends on that. You see, we have to realize as the church and we'll never feel compelled to take the gospel to the world if we don't believe that apart from Jesus, people will perish e- eternally, eternally apart from him. Now, you may say, oh, this is heavy stuff. We have to go there. But listen to what Jesus himself says to the Pharisees in John chapter eight. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. It, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You see, in the New Testament is It's permeated with this subject matter that how people respond to Jesus, who is the only one who can take away their sins and reconcile them to their gracious heavenly father. So will be the outcome of their eternal destiny. Now. I want to talk about four helpful considerations just about the gospel and the grace of God in general as to to a people who are called to present Jesus to the world so that in a sense we put that crisis in people's laps so that they have to make a decision. Of course, of which we want to share in God's heart that the decision would be that they come to know him through his son and become adopted into his family. But I want to talk about what I think may be some helpful considerations for those who are called to present Jesus to the world. These are things that if we don't get them in the depths of our heart, we really just won't be all that convinced that we should take Jesus to the world. Number one is this. You have to believe, first of all, as a Christian, that God is for you. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 In 32, let me read these words to you because they're powerful. Paul says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, say for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us. Will he not with him also give us everything else? You see, we have to understand that God, the father himself is for us. You see, there's this problematic view in the church and people think like, well, Jesus, he came to die for our sins so that the father could now tolerate us. And the father's kind of grumpy about our sins, but now he's going to tolerate us because Jesus paid for our sins. But this is not thinking that aligns with what the scriptures say. Remember John chapter three, for God so loved the world that He gave his only begotten son. You see, God, the father's heart is for the world. When he looks out and he sees the reality of all of the rebellion and all of the wickedness and all of the murder and all of the lust and all of the pride and greed and all of those things, his heart is inclined to offer a way out of the darkness because why God is love. He loves. He doesn't want anyone to perish and to be overcome by the darkness in the things of this world. And so Jesus becomes incarnate in in flesh. Not. Lost my place here. Jesus becomes incarnate in the flesh. I really lost my place. Give me a minute. This is a really good line. I promise. 
Jesus becomes incarnate in light of the Father's eternal love towards us. Not, not, not despite it, but in light of it, Jesus comes because the Father in his love sends him. That the Father would heal us of images, distorted images of who he is, that would cause us to run away from him in our sin rather than run to him. We need him to heal us of distorted images of who he is, while at the same time having a holy reverence, a fear of his name. Now, one author puts it like this. I think he says it so well, and this is something that especially the saints need to understand. Because we still do battle with a sinful nature and we still do fall on occasion. But we do have victory over sin and our lifestyle is no longer one of practicing sin. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us and makes us holy and enables us to. But sometimes we do fall into sin. But here's what you need to hear. This author says this. The wrath of God against the sin of the saints was exhausted on the cross. God's perfect justice, his indignation, his wrath against sin, it was all laid on the cross. It was what, why Jesus came to die, to, to, to take our punishment. And so those who are in him, all of your sin, including the sin that you commit tomorrow, it was paid for at the cross. And John says, uh, the beloved disciple, he says, my beloved, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father. You see, our sin was paid for all of it. You don't fall into sin tomorrow and decide I, I have to go back and figure out how I can please God again and make him happy with me. You see his love and his delight in us. It doesn't shift or change based on our behavior. Now, I want to be, I want to have clear thinking about this because I don't want it to be perceived wrongly. God takes sin very seriously and he does withdraw his presence from us when we're walking in sin, but not because he's abandoned us because he wants us to run back to him for life and forgiveness and peace because he's a gracious and merciful father. But you see this relationship of perfect forgiveness and assurance of salvation that you have is what God wants for others. That's the relationship God wants those, all the unbelievers in your life that you know. That's the relationship God wants to have with them. He wants it far more than we do. And that's a compelling reason to share his love and his grace with those who don't yet know him. Number two, I think this is a helpful consideration. We have to recognize that it's only the grace of God that brings a person to repentance. The Bible says it in a number of places. And so guess who it's not up to to actually change someone's heart and make them accept Jesus. Raise your hand. <laughs> it's not up to you. But what is up to us is to be heralds of the message. Is to be bearers of the good news. So that people can actually have that, that, that crisis moment with Jesus. Where they have the opportunity to receive salvation in his name. But it's up to God to work repentance in the heart of people. You see, because from beginning to end, the Christian life, it's a work of grace. God working on us and in us and through us from start to finish. Nobody in the history of humanity has ever woken up one day and said, you know what? I think I'm ready to be a Christian now. I'm going to go to God and let him know. I'm ready to get rid of all this stuff in my life and, 
accept him and follow him. Nobody has ever done that in their own strength. The only reason anyone ever encounters Jesus and has a crisis of whether or not to follow him is because Jesus has already begun to pursue them. Is what the theologians call prevenient grace. Prevenient meaning going before. God's grace is what wakes up the heart from its state of sin and death and makes us alive with Christ. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He's talking to believers. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Everybody say dead. How many people do you know that raised themselves from the dead? All right. Well, Jesus kind of, sort of, but that's, that's a tricky theological thing. Nobody gets up from the dead unless there's a power beyond them that raises them. And Paul says, we all were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then he says this, but God, that word, but that preposition is very important, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him by grace. You have been saved. Everybody say grace. Grace is a gift. The Greek word actually means gift in the Bible. So think about it like this. My daughter's birthday was January 25th, just very recently. And um, because she likes to dance to Swan Lake in the Nutcracker 24 hours a day, I went to get her some new ballerina gear at the store. You know, got the tutu, the new tutu and the new tights. And we ordered the slip, the ballerina slippers and all of that. Now, imagine if I would have went to her and said, Lydia, you did all of your chores this past year. You learned to spell your name. You proved that you could climb backwards up the slide. So you have my attention now. And I would like to reward you with this tutu and slippers and tights. Is that a gift? No. It's a reward. It's something that she had to earn. And of course I didn't do that. I said, honey, I love you. Here's your gift. I'm so happy to be able to give this to you and to watch her face light up when she opened it. Grace is a gift. We don't earn it. No one else earns it. The people that you're trying to win over to Christ don't earn us. It's a free gift. And what we want to do is offer that gift to people that comes in the person of the Son of God. Amen? Now, one of, one of my dear parishioners called me the other day and she said, Father Cameron, I just, I have to tell you, I've been reading the Bible all day and I'm reading the book of Romans and I'm, I realize that I'm saved by faith. It says I'm saved by faith. She says, I have assurance that I'm saved by faith. And I said, hallelujah. She was literally praising God over the phone. It was just such a wonderful moment because the word of God is living and active. It reveals the truth of reality. And she it woke her up to the reality that when I mess up, or even on my worst days, that doesn't determine if I'm saved. I'm saved because I put my faith in a faithful, perfect Savior. Oh, that we would all come to that conclusion and give glory to Jesus. Here's the third consideration when we think about um, the difficulty of, of people having to choose Christ or reject Him. And it's this, a person, a human being is a person of free will and must choose hell. A person has to choose hell. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. 
and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. He says all that are in hell, choose it. See, these are difficult things, but you see, we're creatures of free will. And when Jesus is in Matthew 25, he's separating the sheep and the goats. He actually says about the goats, the people who betrayed a life that actually was not consumed with Jesus, did not bear his grace and bring it to other people. He says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, iniquity into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, hell is not prepared for human beings, but it's a choice when we reject the presence of God in the person of his son. It's the only other alternative. You see, God is a God of grace. The Bible says he desires that none should perish. That's the father's heart that none would perish, but he does leave it up to us and how we respond to the Christ. You see, there's a necessity for, for God's wrath and judgment upon sin. Think about this for a minute. God has to bring final judgment against sin. Otherwise, how else would the world ever be purified and brought back to its heavenly state? where heaven is going to come and indwell earth and we, God will be here all in all. He'll wipe away every tear from every eye, every suffering, all death will be gone, all fighting, quarreling, everything, division will be gone, will be unified in his throne room and his perfect new creation. But how will that happen unless there's a purging of everything that stands opposed to God in pride and rebellion? You see, it's perfect justice. God is a God of perfect love and grace and he's a God of perfect justice. And it's in the person of his son where those things meet. And so everything depends on how we respond to him, follow him and love him, place all of our faith in him and what he did for us. It's so important for us as the church to know these things, because as we grasp the reality of them, our heart will begin to break for the lost. It will break with the father's heart, which is broken for the lost whom he calls us to reach. You see, it's only choosing to remain prideful that keeps people from receiving God's grace in Christ, refusing to admit that you're a lost sinner in need of mercy. That's all it takes. Now, here's how to know if that's you or if this is someone you know. You, you say to yourself, I'm not that bad. I mean, I believe Jesus like died for my sins and all that, but I'm a pretty good person. I'm not that bad. How many times have you heard someone say that doesn't know Jesus? I'm a good person. People think they're going to, they will not face judgment because they're a good person. The Bible says, Paul, Paul quoting uh, Psalm 14, he says, when God looks out at the world, he sees that none is righteous. Not one seeks after God. It, it, it's, not the, it's not our default to go looking for God. He has to come looking for us. And so there's no one who is good. No, not one, the Bible says. Right? Because how do you define your standard of what is good? Who are you comparing yourself to? Adolf Hitler? Yeah, you're a great person. But you see, God's standard of holiness is so far above anything. It's perfect. And so we need him to impart his own perfection and righteousness to us. And hallelujah, that's what he does in the person of his son. So that we can stand before him holy and blameless, confidence of his love poured out over us. But we have to understand that without Christ, we don't have that. Without Christ, people will perish without that. You see, remember Peter. Remember Isaiah. Peter, when Jesus revealed who he was and his power and his presence by filling the nets with fish, Peter fell down and said, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. If you knew who I was, I could not bear, you can't, I cannot be in your presence. That's a recognition of our own 
shortcoming and fallenness in the, the beauty and holiness of God. Or Isaiah, the prophet, remember he has the vision in Isaiah chapter 6 and the, the, the glory of God, is, his, his veil fills the temple. And he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And then, the, and then the seraphim takes the coal from the altar in heaven and he puts it to his lips and he says, your sins are atoned for and your guilt is taken away. That's a picture of the gospel of Jesus. He's that coal who comes and burns away our sin, cleanses us, purifies us. And the people who will recognize that and receive that with humility are the ones that Jesus comes and throws his arms around and smothers them in his grace and his love. As soon as you say, I'm prideful, I need God, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I need, I need a savior. He comes in to sup with you, to dine with you, throws his arms around you and you become his. That's the gospel, it's a gift. It's a gift and that's what we're presenting to the world. Finally, final consideration is this, and this is the most important thing that I'm going to say today. It's that we must value Jesus above all. Because if we don't value Jesus above all, how will we ever think that we'll be able to go ask other people to? When you ask, when you invite people to come to know Jesus and have a relationship with God in Jesus, you're, you're inviting them to, to make Jesus everything. This is not a, you know, Invite, invite Jesus into your heart, you know, become a part of a church. And, you know, those things are important, but that, that, that's, that's not it. That's not the center of it. It's that you're inviting someone in to, to be who they were created to be, to follow Jesus with everything that they have, every moment of every day. And so if we as the church do not value Jesus as supreme, we won't be able to present him to the world as the supreme thing. You see, so many Christians live unsatisfied in God. We live unsatisfied in God. We're unsatisfied in Jesus. John Piper famously says, sin is what we do when we're not satisfied in God. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied in God. We turn to other stuff. Stuff which is never, ever good for us. Now, here's a question for, for all of us to ask and to just to, just to wrestle with today. And this is, I'm, I'm loving on you here. This is an encouragement to think about this because it's a, this is something the Lord brought to me and, and faces me with. But here's a question that we should ask ourselves. What do I value as supreme in my life? What is, what is my schedule? My use of energy? My use of money? What does it reveal? It reveals what we love. What we value as supreme. What occupies my thoughts most of, most of the day, most days? What does that reveal? Is it Jesus? Psalm 37, chapter 4, one of my favorite verses in the psalm. It says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. God wants to be delighted in. He wants us to have joy in him. Not in his blessings, Yes, we can delight in those. But primarily, first, what he wants is for us to have joy just in him. If we had nothing else but him, would we have joy? If we were imprisoned in China and persecuted for being a Christian over there, and we were kept in solitary confinement, and we got we had to live on a, a, a teaspoon of rice a day, and that's all we had, would we still delight in Jesus? That's the question. Would we value him as supreme? It's challenging. It's challenging for me to think about. 
But you see, salvation is not just, I believe Jesus died for my sins and I'll go to heaven when I die. Salvation, the Christian life, is about valuing Jesus above all else, letting every day, every minute, every hour be consumed with him, doing all that we do to the glory of God. And it's it, it, we're enabled to do it because he offers to put his own spirit in us and have fellowship and communion with us to enable us to enjoy him and to be in his presence. So the crisis for all of us is this. Will you delight in Jesus as the ultimate soul satisfying reality? The ultimate soul satisfying reality. Paul, he's writing to the Philippians and Paul was a guy who just threw everything away for Jesus. He's going on and on about his Jewish credentials. And he says, listen, he's talking to religious people. And he says, listen, I did the religion thing. I did it better than all of you. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I had the best teachers. I kept the law. I was righteous according to the law. I did all of that. And he says, I consider it all rubbish for the sake of Christ, because in him, I find a righteousness that's not of my own, but it's his. He says this, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I'm not going to tell you what that word literally means in English. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Are we willing to to lose everything? That's the question before us, friends. Every day when we enter into his presence, are we willing to lose everything to gain him? Because when you gain him, you gain everything. Amen? You gain everything. His presence, his blessing, his protection, the promise of eternal life and joy and peace forever and ever. How many Christians do you know with this kind of passion for Jesus? This is where God is calling us to take steps forward in our passion for Jesus. It doesn't matter where you are right now. Some of us are probably going, man, I'm really not all that passionate. Guess what? That's the Holy Spirit stirring in you to say, there's more. There's more. It's time to press in deeper. He says it to each and every one of us today. It's time to press in deeper into my presence. Just to just start, start taking some steps, start taking some risks to come closer to me. And I'm going to give you more than you could ever imagine of myself. It's going to be sweet. It's going to be full of joy. Now, here's the thing. As everything in the Christian life, everything points us back to the cross of Jesus, the cross on Calvary. It's the cross that makes Jesus shine out as of supreme beauty and value to us. Because when you see him there hanging on the cross, the Lord of the universe, whose wrath and judgment we deserved, but chose to actually give his own self over to absorb it, and to wipe it out once and for all so that our record could be made clean, he'll become beautiful. You look at him and say, Jesus, I didn't deserve this. I deserve judgment. Look at the way that I live. Look at the things I've done, the things I've said, the people I've hurt, the relationships I've destroyed, the addictions that I've indulged in, the, the, the sins of the flesh, the things deserving of death. And you died for me? You... you You loved me that much that you would rescue me by giving your own body over to the death that I deserved. You know, I I would go as far as to say is sometimes if you're not moved 
to tears by that reality, there maybe hasn't been a full grasping of it yet. Because it's the most beautiful truth in the world. For God so loved the world. God proves his love for us in this, as Paul says, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this child who is presented in the temple and was prophesied over, who, who provokes a crisis in each and every one of us, wants us to present him to the world. It's the church's mission. If we're not doing that, we might as well forget about everything else. And so I'm excited. Because this new year at the forefront, at the top of our list for things that we are going to do as a church, it's evangelism. And I don't just mean having a cool event and hoping some people will come. I mean going out to Lake Lily, to Crane's Roost, to the mall, and bringing Jesus to people. You know what you will see when you do that? The heavenly sparks will fly. People will get healed. You will, God will give you prophetic words for people. When you start to step out in risk and you say, God, I'm going to be on mission for the sake of your kingdom. I'm going to take the presence and power and love of Jesus into this broken world. He sees you and he's with you. When he commissions his disciples, he says those famous words and would that they become more than words to us, but a reality that we actually believe. I will never leave you or forsake you. He always goes with us where we go and understanding who god is that jesus must be of supreme value to us understanding how grace works that it's a work of god and how much god desires to save people from destruction is imperative for christians who would share their faith these are these are truths that need to be ruminated on contemplated so that they sink deeply into our bones and give us a heart for the world that God loves. You see, as Christ was presented in the temple and set apart, appointed for God's purposes, when you came to Christ, you were set apart and appointed for a purpose, for a destiny. Everyone say this, I have a destiny. That destiny is to bring Christ to the world so that others can enjoy him with you forever. And so many of us, we've withdrawn the church at large. I'm speaking in general here, have withdrawn from evangelism out of fear. We know the world is hostile to Christianity. We know they think we're weirdos. So what? Think about things from the perspective of eternity. Peter, who went from bumbling idiot, if I may say it, to bold evangelist when he was filled with the power of the Spirit, He says this in his letter in the New Testament. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. He says, consider him of supreme value in beauty. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's evangelism. Don't be scared. If you suffer, you're blessed for the name of Christ. 
value Jesus in your heart as supreme Lord of all and be prepared to tell people about why you have hope. Why you have hope. I started a, a, a book club with uh, two, two guys my age uh, this weekend. Uh, they're both neighbors. And one of them is a believer and one of them is not. And actually the one who's not, we brought up C.S. Lewis and he said, we, we should study that book, Mere Christianity, together. And we said, okay. And so we've begun to sit together and read through Mere Christianity and engage. And we are, we are having the opportunity to share with him the hope that we have. And he's fairly condescending towards many religious people. But you see, who cares? It's an opportunity. God opens opportunities us to bring people to the truth. And I believe with all my heart he's going to come to know Christ. Not because C.S. Lewis is going to convince him, but because in the fellowship of people who know Jesus, he will encounter Jesus. The stuff in the book will help clear up his thoughts about what's true. You see, you and I bear the presence of Jesus to the world. And the more we begin to value him who was presented in the temple as the supreme reality, it will show. It will emanate from our presence and people will be drawn to it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we we turn away from fear by the work of your Spirit. We turn away from fear, inhibition, everything that would hinder us from bringing Jesus to those who don't know him. Lord, if your church is not about this, then what are we about? Nice music, nice candles. Lord, help us to be about that which is on your heart. Help us to be about that which you are for and to know how to bring your holy name to this world, to see captives set free, to see the sick healed, to see those who are in bondage and enslaved to the fear of death, as Hebrews said, released from that fear by coming to know you and Jesus first do a work in us that we would see you for who you are, your person, that you're a living person who offers his very presence to us, Lord that you've you've wiped us clean of our sins that deserve judgment and you've made us your own, called us brothers and sisters and friends. Lord, teach us what it means to be in your presence in our quiet time, to value you above all things and to go out in the world carrying that joy that flows from that secret place. It's in your name we pray. Amen.